song to be really our, our, I guess, our theme as we go through Hebrews is uh, the truth that Jesus is better. That's something that we see all throughout Hebrews. But I, I, I love that song and that, that really that prayer when it says, make my heart believe. We could say all day, Jesus is better, but really do our lives support that? Do we make decisions that prove to us that Jesus is better? I think, I think we, we, we can say we can give lip service, but does our heart really believe that? And I believe, I, I think, I'm persuaded, when our heart truly believes that Jesus is better, that's when it'll impact and make a difference in our lives and our decisions. So I love that prayer. You know, we could say it, let's keep saying it, we need to say it, but do we believe it? Make our heart believe. There's a story of a young prince who lived in a country that had no fruit. This man was a scholar and spent a great deal of his time reading. And in his readings, he often came across references to fruit. The descriptions of fruit were so enticing that he decided to undertake a journey to experience fruit for himself. He went to the market and he asked if anyone there knew where he could find fruit. And after much searching, he located a man who knew the directions to the country and place where he could find fruit fruit. The man drew up elaborate directions for the scholar to follow. With his map in hand, the scholar carefully followed all the directions. He was very careful to make all the right turns and check out all of the landmarks, everything he was supposed to see, he saw. Finally, he came to the end of his directions and found himself upon the entrance of a large apple orchard. It was springtime, and the apple trees were in blossom. The scholar entered the orchard and proceeded immediately to take out of the blossoms and, and taste them. He liked neither the texture nor the, of the flower nor the taste of the flower. He went to another tree and he sampled another blossom, then another and another. Each blossom, though quite beautiful, was distasteful to him. He left the orchard and returned home to his home country, reporting to his fellow villagers that fruit was a much overrated food. Being unable to recognize the difference between the spring blossom and the summer fruit, the scholar never realized that he had not experienced what he was truly looking for. I read this parable and I find myself thinking about the hundreds of thousands of people in the world who have gone on a search for God. As people made in the image of God, we, there is just something deep within us. We talk about the whole needing filled. There's something deep within us that longs to know God. But what most people experience is religion. And religion ends up being distasteful and greatly dissatisfying. Many of these people, they, they walk away realizing, or pardon me, not realizing that what they experienced was just distasteful religion. And it didn't satisfy because what their souls were looking for, what, what they were actually longing for, was an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So you guys, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 and, and, and continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, we know, introduced us to a very mysterious Old Testament figure by the name of 
Melchizedek in chapter 5. He, he quoted from Psalm 110 uh, verse 4, and then he talked about Melchizedek again in ver- chapter 5 verse 10, identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of the Melchizedek type in the Old Testament. And then starting at verse 11 of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, the writer diverts to what we refer to as the the warning passage, the third warning of Hebrews. But now, having, having given the warning, he moves back to the ongoing discussion of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Verse 1, for, the Mel- for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So this Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Now there's many kings in, in the pagan world that were both kings and priests, but not in the nation of Israel. Either you were a king or you were a priest, but you weren't both. I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean, there were a couple of kings in Israel's history who tried to function as priests, but that didn't go very well for them. So this is quite a, a puzzling introduction, that he is both king and priest. And as king, is, it shows us he was the king of Salem. Now, there's some discussion about most, uh, I guess, this, this, this place. Most scholars think Salem is a reference to Jerusalem, at least, at least Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem. That there's uh, Psalms actually where Salem is clearly a reference to Jerusalem. So I, I think that makes sense, but there, there's discussion over, over this. Salem, though, the word itself is derived from the word shalom, which is a word that means peace, or sometimes better, so we understand what it means. It means flourishing, being prosperous because of peace. So this king of Salem, he was priest of the Most High God. Now, it's interesting, now, because Melchizedek was not Jewish. He was not from the line of Israel. He wasn't a priest over some pagan god that just happened to be in the vicinity. He was priest of the Most High God, the God of Abraham, the the one true God, which again makes him a mysterious and puzzling figure. The rest of this says, the priest of the Most High God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So at this point, it's helpful to know the backstory, to begin to uh, really to make sense of this. One of the challenges of a section like this, guys, and uh, maybe there's there's two real challenges, is to understand what is the writer trying to say. And we always want to understand what is he trying to say, and it's very complex. But the second is what is its relevance to us today. I think that's a fair question. This is one of those passages where you read before work and and in the morning and when you're done you just say whatever. (laughs) I mean you read this and then you just go on your way because you're like I have no idea what this is saying. So we need to read it again and and get the backstory. So part of this is built again on, on the backstory which they were very familiar with. Melchizedek only shows up in four verses in the the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. So what's happening is four kings from the east come together and basically attack the five kings around Sodom and Gomorrah. And just for for convenience sake, we'll we'll, we'll group them together, the, the, the kings of Sodom. 
So they defeat the kings of Sodom, and they, they plunder their cities, and they capture their people. And among these captured is the nephew of Abraham. Anybody know his name? Lot. Yeah, you guys are awesome. So Lot and his family are taken away by the four kings of the east, but someone escapes. He gets to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, this is what happened. So Abraham musters up an army, 318 men to be, to be exact. They trace down the four kings of the east, and in the middle of the night, they attack him, and they win. The plunder is given back. The captives are set free. So Abraham and his men are, are heading back home, and they're coming through what most people think is the, the Valley of the Kings, or maybe you've heard of it this way, the Kidron Valley, just a little bit south of Jerusalem. And there they encounter the king of Sodom. But then they also uh, uh, encounter this mysterious figure, the king of Salem, by the name of Melchizedek. So the Kidron Valley, again, would be right below Jerusalem. And that's, again, why a lot of people think that this is what he's talking about, where he was a king from, because it was just, it was really close to where his kingdom was and his city. So that's the text. Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessing him, that's what it's talking about. Now, when we see this, this language of, of blessing, again, it's so easy just to read over it. We have an understanding, I guess, what blessing means, but we probably don't think much of it. But in the ancient Near East culture, it was this honor culture. And a lot of our exchange students, they come, they come from this honor culture. This terminology of, of blessing wasn't just thrown about. Even today, again, in honor cultures, this has to do with the fact that one of the greater is passing a blessing to the one who is lesser. The greater is often called the patron or the benefactor. The lesser is called the client. And the idea is that it establishes a social relationship, the greater and the lesser. So Abraham is the superstar for Israel. Am I right? He is the, the father Abraham, has many sons. And many, I mean, we sing songs about him. He was the superstar. But yet in this moment, Abraham is identified as the lesser because it's Melchizedek, the greater, the benefactor, the patron, the one offering the blessing. He blessed him. Verse 2, it says, to him or to whom, pardon me, also Abraham apportioned a tenth part, a tithe, of all the spoils. So the response of Abraham was to give Melchizedek an offering, a, a tithe. Now this again would indicate that Abraham was entering into this relationship. He didn't argue. He didn't push back. Sometimes there's people in our life who, who like to assert themselves as the greater. And we give them pushback. Hold on now. Who do you think you are? Abraham didn't do that. He didn't push back. He didn't say, hey, wait a minute. I'm greater than you. They're going to sing songs about me. As a matter of fact, he was agreeing. He received the blessing and in return, he gave a tithe, which in essence was his agreement. And to enter into, entering into this very common, he was very aware of this social relationship. Now, why did he do that? And the text tells us, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Now in the ancient world, guys, names were often 
use as descriptions. They were, they were often descriptive. I mean, they weren't, they weren't just names that we gave because they were popular. They were descriptive of the people, like Mr. Ned. We would call him Redbeard. <laughs> I mean, just, hey, hey, Redbeard. <laughs> or, or, or like when my wife, when she speaks to me, she often says, hey, handsome. It's just... <laughs> I was hoping she'd be in here. So the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. The Hebrew Melech, which means king. And then the rest of his name is his Hebrew word, the derivative of Zadik. Zadik means the righteous one. So Melchizedek's name literally could be pronounced Melech Zadik. So he is the king of righteousness. The text goes on. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So again, I mentioned Salem was this derivative of Shalom. So Jerusalem, Jeru, that, that's foundation. And Salem, or Shalom, of peace. So Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is also the king over peace and flourishing. In essence, that's what his name is meaning, what it's saying. So, and Abraham knows that, and that, that's why he, he responds the way that he does. Verse 3, says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually or continually. So what does that mean? This is, again, one of those things, whatever, and we just keep going. But there's a couple different views one, this is, I think, the view that, that I was originally introduced to, and I believe for a, for a long time, but it's the view that referred to as a theophany. It, it's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ. Really interesting, kind of, kind of exciting if that were the case, but very few people actually hold that view, the pre-incarnate Christ, because it says, when it, when it says, but made like the Son of God, I mean, if this was a theophany, it wouldn't be like the Son of God. I think it would say he is the Son of God. So I feel like this language really kind of rules that out. Who knows? People discuss it. Some scholars think it's a reference to some unknown supernatural being, some sort of angelic being in human form because he doesn't have a mother, doesn't have a father, a beginning or an end, doesn't have a genealogy. And wow, I mean, it's still, I guess, possible it really kind of, it, it kind of adds more questions to, to this whole thing. It opens the door for so many conspiracy theories. And I, I don't like going down these roads. I mean, it's just, it, we have to, like, like, like atheists, we, have, we need more faith to believe this. So I, there's not a lot of people, scholars, who hold to that view. But most people, and I think the studies and the commentaries that I've read, most people actually think that Melchizedek is what we would refer to as a literary type. Now, now this, this is actually common in the Old Testament. He's a real person. He was a real king over real people. And he is presented in a specific way as a literary type or a shadow of one who would come later, who would be the fulfillment of the shadow. So the idea is not that Melchizedek literally didn't have a mom. He literally didn't have a dad or a genealogy, a birth date or a, or a death date. As a human, of course he did. But as a literary type, he doesn't. And so you have someone who we don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We don't, we don't know his genealogy. In the ancient world, being a king, we know, would come from your genealogy. 
You, 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 it, it's all about the family line. The same with being a priest. It was all about the, the family line. It's all about genealogy. Matter of fact, if, if you were a priest and you could not prove your genealogy, you were determined to be unclean. It was so important, so, so valuable. You could not be a functioning priest. And yet along comes this one who's, who's not Jewish to begin with, who's identified as greater than Abraham, and this man who is a king, not because of his family line, just because he's a king, is also a priest, not because of his family line, but just because he's a priest. And he's identified as one who will be priest forever. So the text is saying that the, the literary figure of this one who is a priest and a king doesn't die. This, this, this figure is eternal. So go back and read the Old Testament. Guys, Abraham died. Isaac died, Jacob died, David died, Moses died, Aaron died. The text records the deaths of all these people. But all we know in these four verses, this mysterious figure, this, this possible literary figure, he doesn't die. His priesthood, this, this office that he holds, is forever. So that's Genesis 14. So that would have been written, say, roughly 2000 B.C., Melchizedek is then brought up again, maybe a thousand years later in Psalm 110, and it's just identified as a priesthood that goes on forever. And then he's brought up another thousand years later by the writer of this book of Hebrews, and then the book of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of this ultimate high king priest who would be a priest forever. It's very consistent with what we've been seeing so far already in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's talking about the office, less important of, of, of who Melchizedek was historically, but really it's important of the office that he held and looking forward to the one who would take that and do it eternally. Does that make sense? So, okay, verse 4. Now he says, now observe. And we would probably say in our language, now be careful. Listen up, y'all. So how great is this man, talking about Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham the patriarch, that's again the superstar of Israel, gave a tenth or, or a tithe of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from that people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Okay, well, again, what does that mean? What is the text saying? Now, again, now pay attention to this. This is what he's saying. This, this, the one who is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek, is the one that received a tithe from Abraham. The priest, guys, according to the law, according to the commandment, their job was to collect the tithe from the people. It was the temple tithe. That was, that was part of their duties. But they didn't collect the tithe because they were considered greater, they could collected the tithe because that was their job. That was their role. It was part of the commandment of the law. Go out and collect the temple tithe. That's why they did it. So what the text is saying, it wasn't because they were identified as greater. It was simply their job. Verse 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, again, speaking about Melchizedek, Collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So what he's saying is this. But Melchizedek is different. 
He didn't collect the tithe like the priest because it was his job. He actually received a tithe from Abraham because Abraham was agreeing that Melchizedek was the greater. Now, again, in, in ancient Near East culture, this would have been abundantly clear. No one would have, would have been arguing this. They get it. Abraham, you know, the proof is in his response. He agreed to this social relationship. He had identified Melchizedek as being greater than him. And that's affirmed in verse 7. But without any dispute, so again, nobody's arguing this, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It just affirms what we just said. So he's really, again, hounding this point. Jesus is what? Better, he's greater. He's showing this position and just setting it up. Some of you guys have read this. You're familiar. You know where he's going with this. And you're probably just sitting on the edge of your seats in anticipation. I love how he's building this case. But read with me now verse 8. In this case, meaning right now, today, while he's writing the book of Hebrews, mortal men receive tithes. Again, the priests in Jerusalem are still doing their jobs. Mortal men, priests that have no ability to save them, are going out and collecting tithes. But in that case, meaning Melchizedek's, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. So the Jewish people understood that this, this fulfillment of this shadow by the name of Melchizedek would one day come, and he was going to even be greater than Abraham, that he would be the ultimate king priest, not because of his genealogy, but simply because he was a king. And simply because he was the ultimate high priest. And verse 9 says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithe, paid tithes. For he was still in his loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Levi was the greatest grandson of Abraham. Pardon me, the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. And you had to be within the tribe of Levi to be a priest. And specifically within the family of, of Aaron. So what the writer is saying, that even though it, it, uh, the, um, through the tribe of, of, of Levi, the priests were collecting tithes in this story... Even Levi, because he was still in Abraham, was paying tithes to Melchizedek. So it wasn't just Abraham, but everybody that's come from Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek. So he's greater than the whole system. So technically, even Levi, representing all the priests to come, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Even the priests affirming, all the other priests were affirming that he is the greater high priest. So having said that, right, we, we, we've worked our way through this far, having said all that, the application is abundantly clear, right? <laughs> we, we read this and it goes to the point, and I feel like we're wondering, so what? What does this mean for us today? And the point, remember, the point that the writer of Hebrews has been trying to make to a group of, of mostly, if not all, Jewish Christians, believers who, who seem to be tempted to go back to Judaism, and this has come up again and again and again in the book of Hebrews, is that there is this concern, and it's likely that the Judaizers were talking to them and saying something like, hey, if this really was true, if this really was what God wanted, you wouldn't be persecuted. 
It must be God's punishment. You need to come, come back to, to Judaism. Come back to the old covenant. Back to where you're safe in the old ways. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them saying, wait a minute. You can't go back to that. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Abraham. He's, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than all of these. He's the fulfillment of this Melchizedek that all your stories and lore refer to as being the ultimate high priest. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And so the author of Hebrews is just saying, don't. Don't go back. Now, let's just stop and think about this for a minute. Everything in the temple system was set up to be a shadow it was a picture of, of the promise of the coming Messiah. The temple, the priests, everything within the temple, the sacrificial system, again, the Sabbath, all these things were meant to be foreshadowing of telling them of, of, of Jesus that he's coming and he would fulfill these promises. The one that is greater than Abraham, this long-awaited ultimate king priest. But when that Messiah actually came, what was their response? You would think that they would have the celebration of all celebrations. They've been looking forward to this, that finally, after all these years, this long-awaited Messiah has come. They'd have parades. Everything is just shut down. He's here. But as you know, that's not what happened. As a matter of fact, they rejected him. And they executed him in order to keep their religious machinery going they loved the religious machine that is just a staggering concept this person that again all throughout the new uh, old testament they were looking forward to they just they, they killed him so at some point the shadows and pictures that were meant to reveal christ actually became the substitute for christ this, this is the point of the writer's, uh, writer of Hebrews. He's trying to say, those were just pictures. Those were shadows. The real thing is here. He's come. The fulfillment of what Melchizedek foreshadowed has actually come. Now, advance 2,000 years. Certainly, we don't have the same problem, do we? We don't love the shadows more than we love the real thing. Guys, the world is filled with religion. Always has been, always will be, because religion appeals to our flesh. There's something deep within all of us that wants to believe, I can do this myself. I have what it takes. Religion is all about self-righteousness. Here, here is the practice, here are the rules, here's the liturgy, here are the steps, here's everything you do. Ultimately, if you do this, God will accept you. How many thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were honestly, maybe sincerely seeking God, experienced cold, dead religion? And for them, it was so distasteful so dissatisfying, so impossible, they walk away. 
not realizing that what their soul longed for was not religion, but an, an encounter with this resurrected person, this ultimate high priest, Jesus. Guys, we live in a, in a world today where we've convinced ourselves there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute morality. Nothing's really nailed down. Everything's just kind of loose and, and up for grabs. And what creates in people, uh, what that does, it creates in people an anxiety. It creates fear and confusion. Nothing really feels sure. And so there's so many people in today's culture that are turning to something that what they feel like is nailed down. They feel like it's, it's rooted. It feels like it has some sort of substance that they can deal with their anxiety. They can deal with their fear and their struggles. So where do they turn as they're desperately looking for something? They turn to religion. They think that somehow they are going to find it for themselves in a building. Or they're going to find it for themselves in a practice. They're going to find what they're looking for in liturgy. They're going to find it in, in, in more discipline. They're going to find it in more practice, in more rituals of some sort. Many of them are not seeking to experience Jesus. They are seeking to experience an experience. But at the end of the day, guys, religion will never be enough. Religion can't deliver the goods. It's easy for us, even this morning, to think, oh, I know just who you're talking about, Kellis. It's those people. It's, it's, it's that religion, or it's, it's that denomination. It's, it's that church over there. I've met them. I know them. They, they're whack. I know exactly what you're talking about, but certainly there wouldn't be us. It couldn't be us this morning, right? It couldn't be us sitting here. But here's the deal, guys. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking to us. And it would be a huge mistake for us to, 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 to make, just to, to think that this same thing can't and won't ever happen to us. Somewhere along the line, we start to think it's a practice. It's a program that matters. It's this group that matters. It's this, it's this methodology. It's, this, it's something that we are doing that was originally intended to lead us into a more dynamic relationship with Jesus. But at some stage, that thing that was supposed to lead us to Jesus came and end in itself. Hebrews talks about Jesus and the gospel being the anchor for our soul in, in the midst of difficult times. But there's another kind of anchor, and it's a kind of anchor that we are very familiar with, and it ties us down in bondage, where we never really experience the life of God, the life that he, that he has for us, that he's called us to. Because somewhere along the line, we lose sight of what we and it is supposed to be and what was supposed to lead us into a different or and, and dynamic and deeper relationship with Christ again that becomes the end in itself and that just becomes a form of idolatry and we're back in it here's another way of asking the question can you honestly guys tell me can you honestly tell me this morning that you are more deeply and passionately in love with Jesus than you were a year ago. Really? Can you really say that? And if not, why not? You're involved in a program. 
You're involved in, in a small, maybe a home fellowship in a small group. You're involved in a practice. You've got your disciplines. You've got your liturgy and whatever it might be. But at some point, did you start to, did you start to think that that thing was the answer? I just need to be a part of this group and I'll be okay. That's, that's the answer. I just need to be a part of this program. That's the answer. I just need to have this discipline. I just need to have this, this practice in the mornings. I just need to have this liturgy. I need, I need to go through this, this ritual. Guys, we all have our own rituals, don't we? We have our own liturgies. We have practices. And at some point, we're thinking, if I could just plug in there, and, we, and just losing sight of the fact that all these programs, all these, these disciplines and liturgies, they have no power to change our lives in themselves. They're pointing us, they're helping direct us to the only one who can change us and save us, and that's Jesus. Guys, no religion, no practice, no, no discipline, no ritual will ever be enough. Only Christ is enough. What a, what a tragedy it is that thousands and thousands and thousands of people, very in, sincerely in search of God, encounter religion. And in their confused mind, they think they've encountered God, and it's distasteful. It's dissatisfying. And so they wander away, and, and they fail to realize that what they were actually looking for, what their soul was longing for, was a meaningful encounter and relationship with a person, with Jesus Christ, a relationship with the resurrected, living Messiah, at the end of the day, guy, Christ and Christ alone will be enough. So my prayer is that we wouldn't get lost in, in, in the programs. We wouldn't get lost in the rituals because so many churches are looking at church history and we're finally coming around. We're starting a, new, a church. You know, we're, we're here. We're doing it. And it's so easy for us to think, now we've got it right. We've got it. We've got the formula figured out. And we just missed it. It's not about these things. It's Jesus. All these things have to bring us to Jesus. It's the person that ultimately sets us free. We gotta, I want to sh share a video with you real quick, and then we'll continue on in verse 11. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat, but it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. 
because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me, acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. That's probably a better place to stop. We'll continue in Hebrews next week. But I, I want to remind you, I want to just underline this, this, this idea of, of rest that we see all through Hebrews. This is, this is the salvation. This is the rest that they desperately sought after, that, that, that was promised that they were looking forward but could never find. It's this rest of your own religious activities, resting in what Christ has done. And by faith, believing that his salvation is, is free, that is completely done, and it is available to you if you just give up and rest. And so we strive to rest. Many of you guys have done this. You, you, you've come to a point in your life where you realized you can't continue on trying to earn your salvation. You just fail. You can't do it. You will never measure up. But even today, maybe years later, there's this draw. There's this tend to add on the works again, to keep trying to do it. And we have to remind our, ourselves and each other to rest daily in what Christ has done, because he alone could do it. I love this, this phrase, you can't do it, and he never said you could. 
He can do it, and he always said he would. Let's be reminded of that this morning. So we're going to close in prayer. And then one of the encouragement I'd like for you guys to do as you, as you leave and you discuss and just talk to people around who are near you, ask them this question. What have you done this past week or, or maybe what, have you, what are you planning to do this coming week to strengthen your relationship with Jesus? Or you can fr phrase it another way. What are you doing to help yourself rest in the finished work of Jesus? Because that's what we need to be reminded of. So I'm really, I, I want you to ask somebody that question. Um, Lord, let's pray. Guys, Father, thank you for this, this time. Thank you for your word and just, just um, being active and alive and your spirit being present. God, we could go all day talking about what we think it means and, and just talking circles around this passage, but without your spirit applying it to our lives and opening our eyes, Lord, we are just, just punching at thin air. God, we, we are, it's, it's futile without you. We are desperate for you. And so we ask, we plead, Lord, that you would, you would help us. Even in this, in this moment as we go forward, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive this word. Apply it to our lives Give us the faith and the courage to, to step out and say, I haven't been resting, and I want to. And help us put our faith in you, Jesus. Help us turn from our sin and turn from the disobedience of trying to earn our salvation towards you and rest again in your finished work. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Help us encourage one another, and all the more as we go out through this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, stand up, speak to somebody. You're dismissed, but you're not encouraged to leave. You're encouraged to stay. <laughs> um, a few of us have a quick meeting. We're going to knock that out real quick right in the